You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading comes from John chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus, had, Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procure, procured a band of soldiers and some officers and chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, who, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was a father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went outside and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about, about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas sent, them, sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing, warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it again and said, I am not one of the servants of the high priest. A relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, 
but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would, would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of the Lord. Be Father, we are thankful that not only this story happened, but that you have encapsulated it by your spirit in your word. So we pray now that you would speak, O Lord, that you would renew our minds. We pray that you would speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all tonight. It's been 14 days since I've been in this room with you, but it feels like about three months. It's kind of crazy. Seriously, God has given us uh, all we need for life on the vine by his spirit through his word. But grapes grow on the vine in clusters. We're meant to be together. And uh, I missed out being with you guys last week when we, our family was on vacation in Texas and just missed being on the vine, just rustling up against you. It's true that the church isn't a place. The church is a people. We were still Christ church together last week when I wasn't with you. And even as I got to be with you, a couple of you this week, uh, but one of God's most important means of grace to his people is when we gather together on Sundays to pray together, to sing together, to sit under his word together, to come to the table together. So I'm back this week and it feels really good to be with you all tonight. All right, can, can I confess something to you that isn't all that great about my heart about this text tonight in John? I realized on a Monday morning when I started thinking about John 18 that I wasn't all that excited about it. I didn't have the same kind of excitement as in weeks past. I think I had subconsciously thought that the good parts were over, that the parts of Jesus's great verbal teaching is like deep theology throughout the Gospel of John. Most of that was past. Sure, we got like that great scene in, in chapter 21 where Jesus is like grilling some fish with Peter. That's a great scene. But now we're just getting to the passion narratives that we all really know really well, right? It's just kind of the same story we've heard all of our lives if we've grown up in the church. The Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus before the high priest, before Pilate, his torture and his crucifixion. And we know this story, don't we? What can I possibly talk about for 40-ish minutes when I get up there on Sunday night? I started thinking, before I open my Bible, 
before I started opening some commentaries. What can I say that isn't just a retelling of the events that we've heard read just now? But you guys, this has been one of the richest and most personally refining weeks of sermon preparation for me in the Gospel of John this week. This chapter is not only a literary masterpiece that John has given us, but the passion narrative of Jesus' death and his resurrection is the entire point of the whole book. This is why some people, some commentators, have said that the four gospel accounts are just passion narratives with extended introductions. That's true. We've had a 17-chapter, 32-sermon appetizer that's now here, set for us in the main course. Chapters 18 through 20 are where chapters 1 through 17 have been headed the entire time. The wave has been building and swelling with every mention of Jesus' hour that we've read throughout this gospel, of Jesus as being lifted up, of greater love has no man than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. And so here we go tonight as the plan of redemption from eternity past begins to reach its height, its swelling height, and then begins to crest and crash. We'll see Jesus' faithfulness to the plan of God throughout this chapter. His faithfulness pitted against the faithlessness and betrayal of everyone else, every other character in this chapter. So we'll follow the narrative through three movements of betrayal. Betrayal in the garden, betrayal in the courtyard, and the betrayal of the world. So first of all, starting in verse 1, the betrayal of the garden, in the garden, we read, after Jesus had spoken these words, which words? Well, most immediately, his incredible prayer for God's glory, his incredible prayer for his disciples that Clint preached through last week from chapter 17, but also, even further back from chapter 17, his entire words of his final farewell instructions from John 14 through 17. But then also, if we want to keep backing up, all of his words that he's preached throughout this entire gospel account. So after he had spoken and said to humanity, all that he needed to tell them. After those words, he went into the garden with his disciples. The other gospel writers tell us that this garden is called Gethsemane, which means olive press. It's an olive garden. But John doesn't give us that detail. But before we go plowing through the story, let's just spend a minute or two uh, perhaps answering a question that a few of you might have had as you read through John chapter 18 this week or as you heard JJ read it just now. Like, Maybe you're thinking, wait, what happened to the part where he was like praying and sweating blood and stuff? Like, I thought there was like some sleeping disciples and didn't Judas betray Jesus with a kiss? Like that wasn't there. Or perhaps many other differences that you may know of from the story from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but that John didn't record. Well, as we said in our very first intro sermon to the Gospel of John, differences in the Gospel accounts don't necessarily mean irreconcilable contradictions. They all are telling their stories from different perspectives, relying on different eyewitnesses. They're highlighting different themes for literary or theological reasons. They are all, all four of the gospel writers holding this beautiful diamond, and they're all turning it and describing the diamond from different facets and faces. It's all the same diamond, but they're speaking at it and describing it from different directions. 
So John, not unaware that Jesus prayed through temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane, is highlighting rather in his gospel account the faithfulness of Jesus. John, not unaware that Judas actually did betray Jesus with a kiss, is highlighting not necessarily the treachery of Judas, but the sovereignty of of Jesus and his power over the entire situation. We saw Jesus say in chapter 10, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Not that Matthew, Mark, and Luke would by any means disagree with that. But it's just not their highlighted emphasis, perhaps like it is John's. So back here in John 18, Judas shows up with Roman soldiers and officers from the temple. They've got lanterns because it's dark. But this is no accident, is it? As we know from John's gospel, the theme of light and dark has been throughout. This is the same time of day that Nicodemus came to Jesus in chapter 3, completely misunderstanding the nature of Christ and the light of his kingdom. And the, here in chapter 18, the darkness of the world is coming against Jesus with torches, lanterns, and weapons to declare war. Verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, he comes forward and he says to them, whom do you seek? They answer him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who, is, who betrayed him, was standing with him. It says at this point that Judas likely betrayed him with this kiss. And then Jesus said to them, when he said, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Now, John doesn't tell us exactly why they fell down, but... Jesus doesn't just say here, when they say, who are you seeking, Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, yep, right here, guys. That's not actually what he says. He's actually saying the exact same thing that he said about himself way back in John 8, when he said, before Abraham was, I am. This is the same construction, this I am he construction. Now, perhaps it didn't register with the Roman soldiers, but it appears it was very clear to at least the Jewish temple guards here that Jesus just revealed himself, not just as Jesus of Nazareth, but the eternal God of the universe, the covenant name of God, I am. So whether these guards perhaps are floored by just the sheer blasphemous audacity of Jesus's identification of himself, or perhaps they're falling to the ground like every other instance of someone coming into contact with God throughout the Bible. The powers of the world who have been sent to declare war, their authority over Jesus, they're now lying in the dirt. So with them on the ground in verse 7, he asks them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth from the ground. Jesus answers, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. We saw Jesus tell his disciples in chapters 15 and 16 that once he goes away, the shield from the hatred of the world, the the magnet that attracts the hatred of the world, once he goes away, that shield and the magnet will no longer be there. The world will come with its full force of opposition, now not on Jesus, but on his disciples. But for one more night, the shield and the magnet is still there. He says, if you seek me, let these men go. The good shepherd will still be caring, and protect, caring for and protecting his sheep tonight. He's willing to stand between them and death and then fight to his own death for their life. But not by a fighting that anyone would have expected. Jesus is, in in a sense, a, a new David. He's volunteering to step in front of his people and fight the giant on their behalf. And even though 
the story of David and Goliath is a story that shows us the power and might to, of God to defeat power through weakness. David still has a sling, right? And then after he knocks the giant down, he still goes and takes the giant sword to cut off his head. It is a power through weakness story. God being more powerful than the enemies of the world, but there's still some weapons involved, right? The battle that Jesus steps up to fight is an entirely different sort. As Paul would later say in Ephesians 6 about the kind of battle that we now continue on in, the one that Jesus begins here in the garden is the way that Paul describes it. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we see Roman soldiers, we see Jewish temple guards, we see Jew Judas's betrayal, we're about to see Annas and Caiaphas and Pontius Pilate. But the thing is, is that all of these guys are just bit players. They're playing their part in genuine hatred and genuine opposition against God, against his anointed king. But this is the kingdom of darkness coming in darkness for its last gasp effort. The mission that the kingdom of darkness has been participating in for millennia, now for one last night, to try to overthrow the king and his kingdom of light. But this battle will be a spiritual one. It's a battle of light and darkness, of sin and righteousness, and it's not going to be fought with armies and swords. But no one other than Jesus in this scene and in this chapter seems to understand that. The soldiers show up with clubs, weapons. They're ready for a fight, ready for a struggle. And then Peter himself pulls out a sword and lops off this dude's ear. He's ready to fight. Maybe he's just a bad, he's got bad aim. He's seriously probably trying to cut this guy's head in half. Instead, Jesus spares him and perhaps it's just an ear cut off. But John tells us this guy's name, Malchus, maybe for one of two reasons. Either this guy Malchus has later become a follower of Jesus. Perhaps at the time that John is writing this gospel, he's a well-known figure in the Jesus movement. Perhaps John is basically telling us, if, if you don't believe what happened, if you don't believe my telling of these events, just go ask Malchus. He'll tell you what happened to his ear that night. Or perhaps he's highlighting the irony of Malchus's name, which means my king. King is a major, major theme. Just go ahead and with a pencil, perhaps this evening, and just count and circle the time that the word king shows up in this chapter. And this is this guy's name, Malchus. Either way, Jesus rebukes Peter, saying, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is not a fight with swords and murder. This is a fight of the cup of God. The cup. The cup of God's wrath stored up against the sins of the world, but now not to be poured out onto the world, but on to Jesus instead. But Peter doesn't understand, or he doesn't want Jesus to face this. But now, and now, Jesus is unwavering. He's saying, this is the will of the Father, and the plan is fully in motion. Do not try to stop this, Peter. And yet the plan of salvation and the acceptance of his people comes through the betrayal of Jesus, the rejection of Jesus by his own people. We've seen Judas betray him in the garden, and now the scene escalates to the courtroom and the surrounding courtyard and the betrayal in the courtyard. John is going to have us now move back and forth, inside and outside this courtroom. Of course, TV and movie directors do this all the time. They'll have like concurrent 
stories going on with two or three characters, and they do this for a reason to try to compare or contrast different stories and different characters. And so here, John is just a brilliant screenwriter. He's not just a newspaper reporter telling us the events of the evening. He's recording the events, but building the tension by doing so. We're introduced to Annas, who at this point was basically the high priest emeritus. He had been high priest for nine years, but now his son-in-law, Caiaphas, was the acting high priest. But it's these two men, Annas and Caiaphas, who are the highest spiritual authorities in Israel. The shepherds of God's people who ought to know, who ought to recognize Jesus, who ought to worship Jesus. And these are the men to whom the authorities bring Jesus. We're introduced to Annas, but then John moves right back outside, outside to Peter and this unnamed disciple, likely John, the writer of this account, and they show up to the courtyard. John, or whoever this disciple is, he's, he's known by the high priest, so he gets let into the courtyard, but Peter gets left outside, right at the door. He doesn't, he's, he's not on the list. The bouncer has kept him out. But John apparently goes in, and he gets permission for his friend to come in also. So as Peter is walking through the door, He's gotten permission to come in. This girl, this servant girl, says to him, you also, it's like condescending smugness, right? You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Perhaps she knows of John as he walks through, but she asks Peter. She points to him and asks. At this point, let's give Peter the benefit of the doubt. Perhaps he's afraid that he's not going to get let in if he identifies himself as one of Jesus' disciples. So, Perhaps at this point, giving him the benefit of the doubt, he seemingly makes a small compromise, and he just says, I am not. Just moments before, when asked if Jesus was, if, if Jesus, was Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, he responded confidently out of love for his disciples, and he said, I am he. And yet now, in fear, and not out of responsive love for Jesus, but out of self-preservation, his disciple says, I am not. It should be startling to us. If it weren't for our familiarity with the story, if it weren't for our familiarity with the the history of Christianity that knows that Peter would be one of the founding disciples of this Jesus movement, if we weren't aware of Jesus' prediction that this would indeed happen in chapter 13, this story wouldn't make any sense to us. Like if we were just reading it for the very first time. In John's gospel, unlike the other gospels where Peter is often portrayed as like proud and brash, kind of bumbling sometimes, putting his foot in his mouth often. In John, John gives us a different picture of Peter. Peter's like the model of faithfulness. He's the model of zeal for Christ. If he is a bit bumbling sometimes, it's really out of devoted passion for Jesus. And if, it weren't, if this weren't the way that it actually happened, this would have been actually a really bad idea for the gospel writers to make this kind of thing up, wouldn't it have been? Making the leaders of this new religious movement look like cowards. The founding of this new movement. The fact that Peter has just decide, denied his discipleship of Jesus, though, is startling. He was so confident just a couple of hours earlier in chapter 13 that this would not happen. He was relying on himself. Jesus knew that this moment would happen. But John doesn't focus in here yet on Peter. He just says that Peter stood warming himself by the fire. And not just a fire, but the careful eyewitness detail of a charcoal fire. The camera, perhaps, though, then moves through the flames and it flies back inside, where Annas begins asking Jesus about his disciples, about his teaching. 
Now, this is entirely inappropriate if this were a legitimate Jewish trial for blasphemy. The judge would never ask questions of the accused like this. They would first take testimony from other witnesses and then ask follow-up questions to the witnesses, not the accused. Two or more witnesses would be required, and if these witnesses confirmed the testimony against the accused, then the accused would be sentenced. But this isn't yet a trial. Annas isn't the acting high priest. He'll send him to Caiaphas in verse 24. This is more like a police detective trying to get in before uh, the lawyers show up, trying to maybe rough up the, the accused or the suspect, try to get him to say something incriminating so that Annas himself can then act as one or two witnesses before Caiaphas. So in verse 20, when Jesus says, when he says, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those, of, those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he says that, he's asking for a fair shake. He's saying, you're ignoring judicial, judicial procedure here. You don't ask the accused. You should be asking the witnesses. Go ask them. If indeed this is moving towards a trial, can I have a fair trial here? To this, an officer slaps the high king of heaven. This lowly Jewish temple guard slaps the high king of heaven, and then has the gall to correct him for speaking disrespectfully. The irony of this entire situation is just maddening as we watch our king be treated this way. But Jesus calmly just says to the soldier in verse 23, he says, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas has come to a wall, an impasse. His line of questioning hasn't done what he had hoped the incriminating testimony from the suspect hasn't come. So he sends him on to Caiaphas in the highest judicial council, the Sanhedrin. Then again, perhaps now as the, the camera zooms past, perhaps the, the profiled face of Jesus as he's being bound and led out of the room, the camera zooms past Jesus and back outside to a circle of people around a fire. And then it comes and focuses in, perhaps on Peter's eyes. Maybe you even see the, the charcoal fire, fire reflecting in his eyes. And after a beat off camera, someone asks Peter. They ask him the same question that the servant girl had just asked. They say, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? Perhaps he, perhaps he winces. Perhaps he thinks about what courage might look like in this situation. But what perhaps was, for the first time, just a way to get into the courtyard, now for a second time, it's maybe more easily justified in his fear, in his cowardice. It came a little hard maybe the first time, now it's a little easier to keep denying Jesus. He denied it and he said, I am not. And perhaps if this is the way all this is going down, this is a lesson for us as well. Small concessions from what initially seemed to be just issues of expediency getting into the courtyard that then turn into steely, hardened resolve for sin. Perhaps not just appropriately enjoying alcohol, but making the concession this weekend, because it's been a really hard week to have too much to drink this weekend. And then next weekend becomes a little easier, even though this week wasn't quite as hard as the last week. Small concessions on the kind of guy or the kind of gal that you'd be willing to date. Because, well... You've kind of been lonely. And well, we both know that this isn't going to go anywhere anyway. Or the kinds of situations that you're willing to put yourself into 
with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Small concessions made months ago or years ago that have now turned into hardened, steely resolve for sexually inappropriate sin. Maybe even these concessions look just like it did for Peter. You've been so hesitant, so fearful for what it might mean that your neighbors or your coworkers might find out that you're actually a Christian, that you've just now put yourself to at work or in the neighborhood to just avoid all scenarios or all conversations where your supposed faith might come up. But here's the thing, if we're being honest with ourselves, all of us here are Peter. When things look good, when aligning ourselves with Jesus is giving us what we want, is helping to bring us the kind of advancement in our lives that we all want. I mean, like 24 hours, it, it still looked good to be with Jesus, to be his disciple. His kingdom was coming. And perhaps I get to be a part of his kingdom. Yes, I, I, I've decided to follow Jesus. It's easy and things are great. But then when the tables turn, when, when Jesus doesn't seem to be able to follow through on the promises that he's made, when his kingdom doesn't look as sure as it once did, our faith wavers, our courage fails. Following Jesus doesn't seem worth it. And perhaps not for all time, but perhaps for five minutes at a time. It's hard to trust Jesus' promises sometimes. So perhaps even for five minutes, I'll just kind of deny my discipleship of Jesus. But praise God that this story doesn't stop here with the rooster crowing and exposing Peter in his sin. It's going somewhere. This story is moving somewhere. And this is not a lesson for us to just resolve to try harder, to be braver, to be more faithful. Outside in the courtyard, there is weakness, there is timidity, there is faithlessness and fear. But inside the courtroom, there is strength, there is resolve, there is faithfulness and courage. Or to paraphrase one commentator, while Peter cowers before his questioners and denies everything, Jesus stands up to his questioners and denies nothing. For the moment, Peter's without hope. All does seem lost. But unbeknownst to him, in just a couple of days, the risen and glorified Christ will restore and forgive him three times. The same three times that Peter denied him with more grace and kindness than Peter could have ever dreamed. On that night, and on that Sunday morning, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. But we're not there yet, and the night must get darker before the sunrise comes. We've seen Jesus' friends, his disciples, his nation betray him. Now finally, we'll see the rest of the world betray him. The betrayal of the world. One, one function that the occupying Roman guard, government guarded very protectively across its empire was its power to execute criminals. They didn't allow the local governments to do this. The Romans gave quite a bit of leeway to local governments, but while in the past the Jewish authorities would have been justified to just hear a testimony of, of a supposed blasphemer and then drag him out of the city and stone him, now they had to go through Rome to have this done. We'll see all this explained in verses 28 through 31 as the Jewish leadership is setting up for Pilate why they need to uh, bring Jesus forward, why Pilate needs to see Jesus. And it's not just that the decision would go through Roman authority, but Rome would carry out the executions in their preferred method, the method of cru crucifixion, which John notes in verse 32 was to fulfill what Jesus had said about his coming hour of being lifted up. 
that he's being lifted up, exalted even in his death, even under the curse of God as he died, but he wouldn't just be dragged out of the city and stoned, but he would be lifted up and exalted. Pilate's the regional governor. He was a member of Rome's lower nobility. He's not completely socially insignificant, but this is why, being of the lower nobility, he's out here way on the boondock desert sticks of Judea, rather than perhaps being a governor in like France or Turkey or Spain or Italy. He needs to do well out here to keep climbing the social ladder. And yet at this time, Pontius Pilate is at the top of the ladder in Jerusalem. The buck stops with him. No more decisions go past him. Which again, again becomes so ironic that the fate of the creator God of the universe lies in the hands of a tepid and fearful Italian. It's crazy. His first question of Jesus is, are you the king of the Jews? He's likely heard of the Jewish expectation for Messiah, a deliverer king who would overthrow Israel's enemies. Pilate wants to know, are you the kind of guy that I need to be worried about? Should I be worried that you are about to start some kind of a violent insurrection against Rome? But his question, his seemingly clear question, are you the king of the Jews, isn't quite so clear. Because the answer to that, Jesus could clearly just answer yes. Like much more than just the king of the Jews. Had Pilate asked him, are you the king of Rome? Jesus could have answered that quite clearly, yes. I am also the king of the universe. So yes. But Jesus knows that's not quite what Pilate is meaning. So he asks him in verse 34, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? What kind of king do you mean? Is this your question or are you just asking me because you've heard some people say that about me? Are you genuinely interested in knowing if I am the king? But this is annoying to Pilate. He says, am I a Jew? I don't care if you're the king of them. I'm not a Jew. I don't care about any of this. I just want peace and I want all this to go well and go away. If you're a threat to Rome, then we'll take care of you and be done with that. But what is it that you have done? Why are they bringing you in here? Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus doesn't answer him, but he says in verse 36, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Jesus is not interested in raising up an army to overthrow Rome. He has his sights on an enemy that is far older, far greater than Rome. So in that sense, Jesus is saying, no. No, you don't have to be worried about me. I'm no threat to the Roman army. You want proof? Look at that one time. You know, like an hour or two ago when one of my followers pulled out a sword, I like rebuked him and told him to put it away. My followers are not fighting because my kingdom is not from this world. And we'll have more to say next week as Jesus continues with Pilate, but this ought to come as a strong reminder to we American Christians as this Wednesday approaches with the 4th of July. We American Christians ought to be so grateful for our country, grateful for the freedoms that it affords us, thankful to God for the United States of America, but with the understanding that this is not our first country, that this is not our first kingdom, our first kingdom is not the United States of America. Our king is not of this world, which means that his kingdom is not the United States of America. 
We Christians are first citizens of another country, of a heavenly kingdom to which we are moving. He comes from a different kingdom and from a different country, and he is our king. So we, let's, let's celebrate and shoot our fireworks and eat the hot dogs this Wednesday. But thankful to God that this is, in fact, not all that we have to look forward to, that we are not citizens first of America. But when Jesus does say, my kingdom, my kingdom is not of this world, this is what Pilate jumps on. He says, ah, so you are a king. I did hear you just say that, to which Jesus just essentially says, yeah, you said it. That was, that was your word. Then he goes on to explain what he has come to do. What he's come to do, his purpose for coming into the world. He says, I've come to bear witness to the truth. This is also a theme that we've seen throughout John. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know God, know Jesus. He is God's gracious self-disclosure to the world. And everyone who is of the truth, Jesus says in 37, everyone who is of God and knows God listens to my voice. There is not one person in this world who knows God that does not first know Jesus. That's an astounding claim that Jesus has just made. I don't care what someone says about how spiritual they are, about how much they claim to know about God, if they do not first know Jesus, he is bearing witness to the truth. He said in chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Know me, know God. This is why I've come. To which Pilate responds with the same kind of evasive smokescreen question that we've been asking since Adam and that we're still asking today, what is truth? Jesus said, I've come to bear witness to the truth. I don't even know what you're talking about, man. What is truth? Every human wants to be convinced that their actions and motivations are true and right. In everything that we do, like unbelievably, the shooter in Maryland this week on Thursday, he still likely today still, still feels vindicated and justified for doing what he did, for finding his five victims at the newspaper who printed an article about him in 2011. They deserved it. I think he, he was thinking this at the moment. I'm sure if we could sit across from the table today and tell him what he did was wrong, was, it was unjustified, it was not good, it was not true, a possible response from him would be, what is good then? What is true? What is truth? That what I had, what I was doing was true and right. And this is why we need Jesus to reveal his true standard of holiness for us as humanity. Left to ourselves, we commit all kinds of evil. Convinced that it is good. Convinced that it is true. Every instance of selfishness and sin in our lives is done with a justification that it's okay for us to do in the moment. Perhaps we know back in the very recesses of our mind that this is not right, this is not good, but we would not do otherwise if we were not convinced that it was actually okay and justifiable in the moment. The rules and the norms of the universe actually do not apply to me in this scenario because of fill in the blank, because I deserve to be happy in this moment, because I'm more important than others. You name it. Any instance of sin or selfishness comes with the justification and vindication that this is right, that this is true. And yet nevertheless, after all of this, Pilate comes back to the Jewish leadership and he says, I find no guilt in him. He doesn't know what truth is. He's throwing up smoke screens to not have to deal with who Jesus is. But what will he do with this? He has found no guilt in Jesus. 
Will he, with convictional leadership, not allow an innocent man to die without cause? Will he, will he perhaps just with convictional leadership just decide to execute him anyway? Will he decide anything? No, he just punts. He punts the decision to them. He says in 39, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Now, if we're reading this well, if we're reading chapter 18 well, we should see ourselves in the mirror in every character in this chapter except for Jesus. We are Judas. We are looking out constantly for our own self-interest, betraying Jesus perhaps when he doesn't meet our expectations of what we want him to do for us. We're Peter. We're cowering in fear constantly. We're betraying Jesus when he doesn't seem powerful enough to no longer give us the courage to align ourselves with him and his kingdom. We're Annas, we're Caiaphas, we're Pilate. We're always conspiring and colluding with the world and our opposition to God and his kingdom of light. And if that was where the story ended, we would remain in just a world of hopelessness and condemnation. But for we Christians, there's another character in John 18 that we can perhaps identify with perhaps more clearly than any character in the whole of the rest of the Bible. Barabbas. Here's a dude that actually was a threat to Rome. The English word that we have in the English Standard Version, robber, it's not the best translation. This is likely a, a zealot leader. He had been fighting for a new Israel likely leading in violent insurrections against Rome. From a Roman perspective, Barabbas is a terrorist. And yet this is the man who experiences freedom as a result of Jesus' condemnation. Through his freedom, Jesus is condemned. Christian, there is perhaps no clearer character in the Bible, no clearer example of the gospel than Barabbas. You are Barabbas, Condemned and without hope. And then as, as we thought about on Easter Sunday, can you even imagine being Barabbas on Saturday morning? Waking up the night before, 24 hours earlier on Friday, you were condemned. You were looking at your death. I don't know if Romans did last meals, but maybe you were eating a steak for lunch or something, thinking this was it. And then on Saturday morning, you awake, perhaps with your children, with your wife, with your parents. And the only reason that you are alive that morning is because that man died. That man, Jesus, the Christ, he died in my place. And I'm alive today because of him. But you're only able to identify yourself with Barabbas if you, like Barabbas, experience freedom through the Christ if you know him as your substitute, if you've never trusted him in his death and his resurrection, friend, you remain just as condemned as Barabbas did on Friday, without hope. I urge you to consider what the meaning of Jesus' death might mean for you, not just generically, but for you, as your individual substitute, that you might experience the same kind of freedom as Barabbas now, I realize there might not have been a ton of application in this sermon. Maybe you kind of have thought this is kind of like an interesting running commentary on John chapter 18. 
Sometimes we like Paul to just kind of tell us what to do. Like sometimes we just like a good sermon from Ephesians 4 with a bunch of commands that we can consider and then walk out of here with some things that we can change about our lives this week. And we need those texts and sermons. But we need John 18 and we need this sermon on John 18 just as much. Walking out of this room in a few minutes, understanding ourselves as weak, as fearful, as tepid, as colluding and violent criminals in opposition to the kingdom of God, understanding who we really are, but walking out of here like the freed Barabbas that we have become, this changes everything. This ought to be all the application that we need to live our lives in joy and in peace and in courage and in faithfulness. Not because obedience and courage and faithfulness will save you, but because of Jesus' obedience and faithfulness and courage, it already has. And not hypothetically, but actually. Like, you, Reuben Duran, you actually stood condemned. Patrick Gozier, condemned. Liz Jones, condemned. All of us, actually condemned. Not hypothetically, but condemned. We stood condemned before God and without hope. And yet, being the good shepherd, he lays down his life for his sheep. He went to the cross with names. And so if that's true then Logan Lester, your name is graven in his hands. This is incredible. Eric Lair, he has bought you. You are adopted as his son. Incredible. Not hypothetically, but actually. We, individually condemned sinners, now walk free, condemned no longer. He has bought us with liberty. He has bought us with his life. And now, in just a moment, we're going to sing a song, Saved My Soul. And it ought to bring the loudest, most joy-filled response out of the depth of your soul. Like louder than any American goal at the World Cup might bring. But that is hypothetical. That's completely imaginary, right? Uh, Your salvation, your liberty and life in Christ is real. Not just some theological maybe some nicety out there that might be true if it were real, but actual. Like say your name in your mind, write it down, and it's graven in his hands. He went to the cross with your name if you are in him. It's all we need. The good news of the gospel, it changes everything. So look and worship. Rejoice and rest Reflect and respond now as we come to the table of what he has done for you in his body and in his blood. Let's reflect, sing with joy. But the good news of the gospel doesn't quite become good news and still it gets darker yet. We're going to sing with a lot of gusto and energy in just a second, but then we got another week to come back. Jesus' death is coming. It's coming. I'd invite you guys I think we're going to get through all of chapter 19 next Sunday. Spend some time this week reading through it. Don't come to this text this week as you read it and as you prepare to come on Sunday like I did on Monday. Yeah, I know this story. There's not much left for me to know about it. Come to worship him for what he has done for you to bring you life and freedom. Let's pray.
Our Father, we are blown away and floored that we can call you Father. That we condemned criminals, we faithless and fearful ones, you might consider your sons and daughters and you might actually be able to bring us courage and faithfulness and obedience through the work of Christ. By the sending of your spirit, Father, we pray that we might understand the meaning of his death all the more this week. This might not just be uh, some true, perhaps, historical reality that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, died on the cross 2,000 years ago. It's not just a fact in a history book, but it is the changing point of eternity, and it is the changing point of our lives. We come to know what the cross has meant for us even more deeply. I pray that, that that might happen even in the next 10 minutes. Father, for those who don't know Christ as their substitute, as their saving lamb of God, Father, might you, through your spirit, bring conviction. That those might understand their place of condemnation before you, their place of living a life of opposition to you, a life of living for self-pleasure, and against the kingdom of light. Father, might the light not come as a searing and painful thing, but might come as a refreshing and warming reality for them through the love of Christ. And we pray that you might make even someone new tonight. You might make a new creation through their faith in Christ on their behalf, we pray. We pray these things in Jesus' wonderfully saving name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.